Hey, welcome to the Harusa Podcast. On today's episode, raging legal battles over the definition of vanilla leads to a Torah perspective on the fluidity of miscommunications and tracking the revolutionary history of Jewish ideas, heralding the greatest paradigm shift in the story of mankind. I'm Moshe Shomer, thank you for joining me on this timeless exploration of wisdom and ideas that have guided history's some of history's greatest men and women for over 3,000 years. There's quite the zenithal legal battle playing out in federal courts across the United States. More than 100 class action suits filed over vanilla flavoring. Vanilla flavoring. The question is, is vanilla really vanilla without actual vanilla beans? On one hand, The plaintiffs, the lawyers, are arguing that customers, consumers, are being deceived. They are purchasing a product that's labeled vanilla yogurt, for example, vanilla soy milk, and there's no actual vanilla in there. So there is a a false premise in this purchase. Other hand, the companies, a whole bunch of them being listed in the suit, Wegmans, Trader Joe's, Shobani, others, say that consumers aren't expecting to find actual vanilla. They're buying it for the vanilla flavor. Now, the vanilla bean, the vanilla flavor is typically uh, found from the vanilla bean. That's where its origins are. It's a very tropical orchid grown in countries such as Madagascar. Um, But it costs a lot. High cost, fluctuating supply. So manufacturers use natural flavor, which is a term that includes ingredients that can be made from wood pulp or fermentation technology. It comes from uh, natural sources, but it isn't technically from the vanilla bean, which goes between $100, $200 a gallon, as opposed to a natural vanilla flavor, uh, which is much cheaper. It goes for, let's say, $50 a gallon. It's more concentrated, so you get more for the money. So, at the heart of this battle, vanilla. What is vanilla flavor? Can the customer claim that I was under a false premise and therefore I want my money back? What would the Torah perspective be on this? Now, if you look in the Chumash, look in the written Torah, you're not going to find any mentions of vanilla. Why? Because 3,300 years ago, they hadn't yet discovered the vanilla bean and its magic and its, and its awesome flavor. So <laughs> it would just confuse and confound the people and it would, wouldn't make sense. Torah is timeless. So it applies to all people and all generations. Therefore, like in this case and in every other manifestation, the Torah spells out principles. Is it the principles that can later be applied to every single scenario we encounter. It could be manifested in all sorts of areas. That's the art of, of the Mishnah, of the Talmud, which at times is referred to the oral Torah, but it, that sort of minimizes its, its scope. What it is, is the living Torah. It brings out the principles of the text into its practical manifestation. Now, each generation will have a different vibe to it. Electricity and technology will be dealt with based on these principles. It can't be spelled out in... Uh, in even 500 years ago, uh, the Jewish people at the time 
would just think that it was irrelevant or that it was something that was was a flaw in the actual legacy. So instead, in the, in the, the great divine wisdom, the principles are there and we extrapolate it. The Mishnah is set up in six different sections, and one of them is called Nazikan, which pertains to all financial issues, legal, lawsuits, court systems, witnesses, etc. In the first triad, and then it's split up into tractates, each tractate talking about one specific issue. First one, Bava Kama, deals with these type of lawsuits, monetary disagreements and the like. And if you look in the third chapter, in the first Mishnah, the Mishnah says something interesting. It's, it's talking about if you leave something in public property and then somebody else trips over it. So if you leave, say, your backpack on the mall, the Kelden Mall, and then somebody trips over it, then, and, and they break it, they rip open your backpack as they tripped over it, they're not obligated to compensate you, even though normally a person is responsible for all their actions. Here, you were so negligible to the extent that you left it in a public space where you can't be expected. There's hundreds of people walking by. Can't be expected. The person's going to be able to necessarily avoid, detect and avoid your backpack. Therefore, they're not liable. Now, what happens if they trip over your backpack and she twists her ankle and now she's in great pain and she has to go to the podiatrist and get a splint and whatnot, then you would be on the hook to pay for those damages as well. For leaving it in the public property, you're now responsible for its effects. And the Gemara, the Talmud goes on to discuss many different applications. What if it was a quieter street, a bigger item, a lesser item, all the different details, the animal trips over it, etc. Now, before even discussing all those details, the Gemara points out that in the linguistics of the Mishnah, there's something very interesting. It, it first says that if you leave a cod, which is a pitcher, um, in public property, and it ends off, and then somebody else trips on it and breaks it, they're exempt, and if they get damaged by it, then Bala Chavis, the owner of the barrel, Chai Benesco, is obligated to pay for the damages. So it switches from cod from this pitcher to a chavis to a barrel. So in the same example, it switches. Pitcher to barrel, and the Gemara jumps in this and says, what's going on? What's up here? Why is this switching the language? And the Gemara's answer is, this is to tell you for mecca humemka, for transactions. Even though here we're talking about specifically damages, it applies, it teaches us something else about transactions. Transactions, such as the case, somebody buys a vanilla, a vanilla ice cream and says, when I purchased this, I thought it was have natural vanilla. I thought it was real vanilla. You're saying that, no, it's not an ingredient. Vanilla's not an ingredient. It's a flavor. It's not an ingredient. It's a flavor. I was selling it to you. This is what I call vanilla. So the Gemara is telling you that they're interchangeable the same way cod and chavis are one and the same. So too, in vanilla, it has varying, varying, varying definitions. It exists, it's fluid, vanilla fluidity. Vanilla is fluid, and therefore the definitions are fluid. And I could say, this is what I was selling you. I was selling you vanilla, this is my definition. Even if that doesn't work for you, you were expecting something else. That's fine. Ask the Gemara, the Gemara continues and says, one second, hey, what's the case here? 
If we're talking about a place, let's say nobody else calls this vanilla. Right, I sell you uh, a pair of shoes and you say, hey, one second, I had ordered in the mail uh, a suit. Why do you send me shoes? And you say, well, I call, I call these shoes. Right, or I call a suit, whatever. I, I, I start up with my own definitions. Well, this is what I call. I sell you vanilla, I give you uh, chocolate ice, and well, I call this vanilla. That, of course, says the Gemara doesn't work. So, rather, what must be talking about? We must be talking about a case where most people, most people call this vanilla. And you're the one, there, there are a few, there's a small minority, vanilla purists, we'll call them, that, no, vanilla's got to be real. So, to, in a case like that, you might think we go after the majority. We might think you should go with the majority, because in general, there's a, a principle that the majority has a has a persuasion when it comes to issues. But we're not sure if it's a suffix, there's doubt. We go with the majority. So we might think in this case, too, we should go with the majority. And whatever the majority says. So let's take a poll and let's uh, see what do most people call Manila. Let's do something like that, which is interesting, because that's what some of these cases are doing. The the defenders of the companies are, are producing they, they did a Facebook poll. Uh, it was really the, the lawyer put on the Facebook, um, you know, showing the travesty that he ordered this vanilla thing and it wasn't actual vanilla. And all the comments on the Facebook uh, posts were all bashing the, the, the lawyer and saying, well, well, one second, you know, goldfish, the snack, goldfish crackers aren't actually gold. Did you know that too? And you know that root beer actually doesn't have beer in there either. And they were all mocking the, uh, the lawyer. So you could see, well, look, the majority of people... They understand vanilla to be vanilla, and you're a purist. Okay, so we might think you should go after the majority. Kamash Malan, the Mishnah now interchanges the words kad and chavis, barrel and pitcher. One's bigger, one's smaller. I buy a cup of uh, grape grapefruit juice. I had this once. It was in a artisanal bakery, kosher bakery out in uh, Miami in Wynwood, and ordered a cup of grapefruit juice, and it was fairly relatively expensive. For a cup of fresh squeezed grapefruit juice. But I was like, ah, it's Miami, the citrus, it's part of the chill, the vibe. I need my grapefruit juice. Brings back great memories. And when they served it, it was it was like this three ounce type thing. It looked like a shot of uh grapefruit juice. I was just expecting a nice full glass of, of juice. Now, here's the thing: it's a cup of grapefruit juice. Now I had idea a cup of grapefruit juice to me is a nice big glass. Their definition, no, this is a cup of grapefruit juice. So what do you do in such a case? Kamash Malan. The Mishnah says, the Mishnah's teaching is the same kad, chavis. It's interchanging pitcher, barrel, size. Even if the majority of people agree with you and say it's a total class, Kamash Malan ain't halchem b'maman acharov. When it comes to monetary issues, we don't go with majority. So in application... It will depend on whoever is holding the money right now. Because we don't go, we don't, majority is not enough to extract money. So therefore, if, let's say in this case of vanilla, the customer already paid to the company, the company could say, well, that's how we define vanilla, as long as they're somewhat within the bounds of the definition. And you can't make up an entire new case. So unless the loss is able to establish that nobody, nobody um, thinks of vanilla as a flavor, everybody thinks it's an ingredient, and that's part of the lawsuit. That the uh, response from the companies was it's just like Rocky Road, you know, Rocky Road is a flavor. There's no rocks inside. Tutti Fruity. <laughs> it 
It's a flavor. So vanilla is a flavor. Unless you could establish that it's an entire different, uh, entirely different definition. There's no one who could, who could define it that way. Then it's out of the bounds. And the same would be in my grapefruit juice case. The same would be in this case of the barrel and the, and the pitcher. Neymar has another case where somebody is selling a, an ox. And in agricultural society, most people used ox for, for work, oxen for work. They would plow their fields, etc. Um, and here the ox was unable to do it. It was an older ox, whatever it was. You finally get it and, uh, two days later. You, the ox is shipped to you and uh, it's not doing the job. And now you want a refund. You want to return it. The owner could say, I sold it to you. You asked for an ox. I thought you were asking for uh for the meat, so you're you're buying meat. Therefore, as long as it's within the definition, if you're already paid, I'm holding the money. Now, as to why, what's the what's the logic behind it? What's the reasoning? So there's two primary reasons. Number one is because when every time somebody holds onto money, they're classified as the default owner of that item. So if I'm holding onto the money right now, I have a, what's called in Hebrew a chazaka. I am the default owner on this. And in order to take it out, you need something conclusive. And when, you, when you're when you coming and saying, well, this is what I thought, this is what it, I was under this impression, that impression, at the end of the day, I have the money right now and you need some sort of, some sort of evidence um, that we should be able to, we, as a court, be able to take away the money from you. Now, on, on a deeper level, Shari Yosher talks about this with Shimon Shkup from Grodna in Poland. Shimon Shkup says that majority itself, when you come with a majority, it's probability. It's math. Right? So the likelihood is, yeah, I'd say 90% of people call it one way. So the likelihood is that here too, um, this, this was the impression of the sale. But likelihood isn't conclusive. Likelihood isn't evidence. It's a mathematical uh, equation. But you can't come, that's not, that's not proof to take away money from me. If I, if I come to you and I say, I have a reason to believe, I have a 90% chance of, of uh, remembering that you once owe me money and I lent you money, you never pay me back, I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure it's not good enough, it's not going to cut it. So you can't come with a case of probability when you're coming against to try to extrapolate items from somebody else to try to take it conclusively, that would be the, the general principle here. Continuing with a letter in the scroll, chapter six, Rabbi Sachs points to the Torah's definition of what a human is. And it's a definition that was and is revolutionary at its very core. And he talks about how Ideas are differentiated from all other data, let's say, in the natural world, where you have causes and effects that once you determine those causes and effects, given the circumstances, it can't be otherwise, right? That's the reality. You see the world, you detect it, you observe it, and that's it. And it's un, it's immutable, immutable. Whereas when in the world of ideas, in the world of hum- of humans, it's different because the ideas themselves create 
freedom of choices that are only possible because of those ideas. What we think, the thoughts themselves shape the possibilities of what we could do. The opposite of how it is in the natural world. So think about it. If you, let's say, walk into a store, you give over a dollar and you buy a paper, a newspaper. Now, this isn't so common today anymore. Let's say you go onto the your browser, you subscribe to a streaming service. And it's a very simple transaction, right? There's no, you, you can do it without thinking. It's just you put in your number and you purchase it. You give over the dollar and you've gotten the paper. But in that one event, you're operating on a surface of a series of institutions that if you would actually analyze it and what went into this transaction, you would start to begin to understand the entire history of mankind. When you have a dollar, when you have a coin, it talks about the evolution of man from the initial stages of hunter-gatherer to city-dweller, specialization, division of labor leads to the necessity of exchange, and thus a medium of exchange, and eventually money, which at first was something valuable in itself, a precious metal, gold, silver, etc., then became an abstract token. And take it to the further example, in the case of the streaming service, and you're using your credit card and the technology that now it's not only an abstract token, but it's an abstract number. And start going to cryptocurrency and where the backbone of the future of finance potentially lays. Unbelievable. You see the human progress from the very initial stages of man to the most advanced stages of of the human mind as we know today. And what are you purchasing? The newspaper this speaks to a series of technological advances from writing to printing to now instantaneous communication. Or think of it again as a streaming service where ideas can be told over in stories in in in, in a snap of a finger. Instant streaming. 5G, telling not over ideas, but complex information that could be accessed within within seconds. It's also part of a political history that gave us the idea that in a free society, we're entitled to that open access of information. So you start looking into this one simple transaction and you start getting into this whole history of what went into this and all the different ideas that this that, that it was built on. And... The ideas themselves become the common heritage of mankind. So think, for example, of the wheel, which was invented in ancient Mesopotamia. There was a problem that humans were facing that there were certain items that were too heavy to carry. And once the wheel was invented, it allowed you to move those objects. And that spreads elsewhere because it's simple and it solves a a universal problem. Other ideas travel less quickly. Uh, You need a specific environment for them to take root and flourish. So, for example, um, in China... The Chinese invented printing gunpowder uh, well before the West, but they didn't go uh, through an industrial revolution that took place in Europe. For some reason, the contexts in the West, that w- when they had access to certain ideas, that context that was not available in the China um, made it possible to create rapid economic growth. And there's also ideas that not only are, are universal and that everybody ends up adopting them, but they still remain. And if you want to fully understand the idea itself, you have to go 
um, to the particular culture where it sprouted from. Every society has music, but not everyone has a symphony. Every human group tells stories, but not all of them create novels. Every culture has some sort of family structure, but it could take very different forms. Nuclear, extended, monogamous, polygamous, different times, different places. The texture of family life is very much local to different nation and tradition. So if you want to really understand the most fullest expression, the, the deepest access that the family unit could offer, you have to find which form you're going with, which which uh, particular culture in the universal value, which particular culture to analyze. Different cultures represent different lives, different possibilities that may not be everywhere else. Right? It took ancient Greece to formulate the very concept of democracy, and it took ancient Israel to discover the idea of progress, that time is a journey. And then once you have those ideas, that opens doors that otherwise would have stayed closed to the human imagination. So though they may be taken up by some other cultures, very often you have to go back to the particular tradition to find a way of life in its most detailed, richly elaborated expression. So therefore, to trace the Jewish journey, to understand Avram's call at the burning, at the palace in flames, to understand what he's internalizing and the messages and the values, you have to go a little unconventional. The conventional way to talk about this Jewish story would be going through the history, patriarchs, the matriarchs, their lives. Alternatively, you could go through the customs, the rituals, the laws, the practices, the halakha of the way of Jewish life, the culture of sorts. The unconventional way is to track the history of ideas, to go on the journey of Jewish ideas. And each one, revolutionary after revolutionary, precipitating one after another after another. That eventually we could get to the point that you could understand why Jewish life is so unusual. What is there that is found nowhere else, no, not in other great religions, not in other secular humanistic traditions, to, to undergo that journey by tracking those ideas that are at the core of so much of the textual fabric of Jewish life. But there's one rule. One rule on the journey is that you can't answer it's inexplicable. That's the one rule. You can't say, ah, it's just uh, inexplicable. It's just unbelievable and be complacent. Judaism, if anything, it's just not a blind faith. It's not just acceptance for things as they are. It's the critical exercise of human intelligence and nothing's higher than that you got to push that push that keep asking the questions never settling at an answer that it's inexplicable now on the surface level to be a jew is to engage in a whole collection of relatively simple things it involves davening studying torah making blessings before enjoying things Observing certain dietary laws, Shabbat, the festivals, striving to maintain integrity in business, in our speech, clean speech. It means being loyal to the concepts of what it means to be a spouse, a parent, a child. It entails being part of a community, 
contributing to the needs of those that need it, visiting the sick, comforting mourners, participating in the joys and celebrations and grief of others. It means being part of a global people whose communities are all spread out, home in Israel community spread out. Sure, these form the, the very constitution of Jewish life. And where, when you're a part of it, you feel as if it's just as natural as walking into the shop and buying a newspaper. But if that's all it is, and you don't get to the ground of which we stand on, the ideas of which this life is made out of, if you end up doing that and you're just on the surface level, so then it's like a nice collection of practices. It's a, like one religion amongst many with its own rituals and events and texts. Jews... Jewish, then, would be for the Jews what Christianity is for the Christians, Zoroastrianism is for the Zoroastrians. In which case, it doesn't really matter much what you are. Okay, so what's the big deal about maintaining Jewish identity? If all Jews would convert to Buddhism, okay, they'd still be committed to decency, goodness, the progress of mankind. The world wouldn't lose anything. It'd be one less faith, another extinction. But that's not the case. That only happens when you separate the way of life from the ideas that are irreplaceable. Avram's cry at the palace has significance for immense significance for the future of mankind from 2021 and on. As Thomas Kale, non-Jewish historian, writes, the Jews gave us the outside and the inside. What does it mean? Outside, our outlook, and our inner life inside. We can hardly get up in the morning or cross the street without being Jewish in this sense. We dream Jewish dreams and hope Jewish hopes. Most of our best words, in fact. New, adventure, surprise, unique, individual, person, vocation, time, history, future, freedom, progress, spirit, faith, hope, justice are the gift of the Jews. And these are the ideas and concepts that if not lived consistently, if just remaining in the realm of thought would be lost with the laws of Jewish identity. And the reason is, is because there's a very vital distinction between science and morality, between scientific truths and moral truths. In science, once something becomes established, it becomes part of the very structure that we live on and build on. And new scientists and new findings build on what's already established. And they refine it and they keep refining it and it's a process. But we take for granted what we know. Once we know and it's established, then we could continue using that and building and building and building. And morality and moral progression doesn't work that way. It's not enough just to have it expressed and to have the idea. Moral thoughts don't exist. They don't survive. Moral thoughts need to be lived. They need to be practiced. They need to be put into action. And once they stop, once they cease being put into action, the thoughts themselves collapse. The ideas themselves have no have no place anymore. Now this is the whole of a Torah lifestyle. The whole of Judaism is the attempt to take ideas and put them into action. To live out the ideas of humanity, freedom, responsibility, society, even if you're unaware of it. So you can drive a car and you don't know how it works. You don't know how the engine runs, but it's still relying on that engine underneath. And if you start tinkering with the engine and you have no idea what you're doing, you're not going to be driving for that much longer. And that's the that's the same here. So yeah, you could buy the paper, you could stream your service without knowing what went into it, all the history, all the values, but you're affected by it. 
Before Judaism came around, the entire world viewed the concept of God or gods as part of the natural order. Just like many stars, planets, and species of animals, there are many gods that fought to struggle. They had hierarchies of dominance. We have many records of these times, right? Mesopotamia, Egypt, Canaan, ancient Greece. The stories are remarkably similar. You have the god of the sky battling god of the sea, out of the victories dry land, and the god of the lane and, uh, of lightning and rain impregnates the goddess of the earth and crops grow. Land brings forth its produce. There's no real distinction between nature, animals, gods, and mankind. Early portrayals of God were always in like these part animal, part human figurines or paintings. And the story told about them are personifications of the forces of nature, the sun, the sea, the wind, the rain. That was the world of myth. It was humanity's first written attempt to understand itself. Where does it fit in the hierarchy and the order of the world? The mythic universe is hierarchical. Archical, hierarchical. It's a hierarchy. And what holds it together is power, which God is most power. The ancient world was threatened by chaos, by, by floods, by droughts, by wars from invading tribes. The stories that they told to, to explain to themselves why this is so is because there's struggles between the gods, the elements, the contending forces that make up reality. And in their religious rituals, what they were doing is aligning themselves with those forces in the battle and going with the victorious power. So we'll go with the god of the sky over the, bottom, over the god of the sea so that there should be no floods this year. Or we'll go with the god of the rain so that our crops, our harvest should be good. We'll go with one god of this tribe in order to make sure our tribe doesn't get de defeated. And that's really the significance of the ancient buildings, the ziggurats that were constructed uh, right at the birth of civilization by the Sumerians in the, in the Euphrates Valley um, that the Torah references as the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel, that their architecture wasn't really architecture as we know today as a form of art, but it was a cosmology. It was a way of understanding the world, a theory of the universe being given a shape, a hierarchy, successive tiers representing the role of higher powers over the lower powers. It gave it society its vision of the world and permanence to its own hierarchy of power. And the gods were part of nature, right? That's what they're saying. Hava lived in the land of air, like we'll become God, we'll become higher on that ladder, on that hierarchy, on that structure, we'll become even higher than the gods that are a part of nature. The strong rule the weak, the strong dominate the few, powerful over the powerless. That's why in ancient myth and ritual, all kings aspire to or were gods. The rest of humanity were replaceable, like ants serving the the queen, the labor force, the army, a means to the end of serving the master. And there were differences between ranks and classes, just like animals in the struggle of survival. There's a hierarchy of power in the jungle. It was self-evident. This was nature. This was reality. And against this backdrop comes a sentence that uttered, that when uttered, heralded in the greatest paradigm shift ever in history. Greatest paradigm shift ever in history was based on this sentence that Hashem 
created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This blasted the whole base of the entire structure of that ancient hierarchy of power. Comes this proposition that took millennia for its potential to actually be realized, but once stated, the rest was inevitable. From this sentence would utter, would flow. From the, once the sentence was uttered, it would flow all the, all the ideas that changed the West, the sanctity of human life, the dignity of the individual, the concept of human rights, the sovereignty of justice, law, the idea of a free society. And at the time, nothing could have been more counterintuitive. Everybody in the ancient world felt that kings, rulers, emperors, pharaohs, yeah, sure, they're all made in the image of God, but that we all are, every person, every human, that's revolutionary. There are two conflicting ways to describe the history of humanity in short. One way, three sentences. In the beginning, people believed in many gods. Monotheism came, reduced them to one. Science came, reduced them to none. That's one attempt. Myth was humanity's first attempt at understanding the world. Monotheism stripped the world of myth. And then science tells us we never need God. All we need is the observation, the ability to connect one thing to another. God becomes redundant, or at most, maybe the initiator of the Big Bang. But then, morality, religion, that's all relegated to early stage on a long road to science. And this is a view that much of society has come to accept. But there's a, quite a very different way of telling this story. And that is that from the very beginning of civilization till today, mankind has reflected on his place, on its place in the universe. Compared to all there is, you look around in the world, we're, we're tiny. We're tiny compared to the, to the scope of the universe. And we're born, we live, we die. At any moment, if you look at our life in the against the, the scope of the world and, and history, we're a grain in the sand on the human beach, a ripple in the ocean. The world preceded us, it will endure long after us. What's our life in the totality of things? And the, the first answer, right? Ancient Greece is the supreme example. The world is impersonal. Earthquakes, floods, famines, droughts. Today, the equivalent would be the global economy, international politics, environment, the information age of technology. All these forces have in common, they're impersonal. They're indifferent to us. Global warming doesn't choose its victims. Economic recession doesn't stop to ask who suffers. Genetic mutation happens without anyone deciding it to whom. Impersonal forces. The world operates with impersonal. The the forces that govern the world are blind. They're not addressed to us. You might be able to stand in their path or try to get out of their way, but they're unmoved by your existence. They don't relate to us as persons. Right? Such a worldview, this ancient Greek worldview, or this worldview even today of so much of Western society. Human hope is only a prelude to tragedy. The most you could hope for and aspire to is like this combination of hedonism and stoicism. Grab whatever you could right now, whatever pleasure you could get, might as well, before the world gets to you. And make yourself 
indifferent to your fate. Be stoic in the face of misfortune. It's coherent, but it's bleak. And a very different version is born in in Torah and Judaism. One that saw in the cosmos, in all the forces of the world, the face of the personal. Hashem brought the universe into existence just like a parent conceives a child, not blindly bad, a lover. You're not insignificant. You're not alone. You're here because someone willed you into existence, wanted you to be, who knows your innermost thoughts, who values you in your uniqueness, whose breath you breathe and whose arms you rest. Someone in and through whom you're connected to all that is. Now, there's a line of development that runs from myth to philosophy to science that that searches for and finds reality in the forces of nature, cosmology, astrophysics, neurophysiology, the genetic stream. And then you have parallel forces operating within society, class conflicts, power struggles, successive elites that are dominating. You could say that that's all indifferent and it's who we are and, and just try to survive it. But the Torah offers a radical alternative. One that locates the key to the interpretation of human life, not in distant galaxies or macro forces, but in the mind. Not in consciousness. On a simple level, consciousness. Animals are conscious too. But in self-consciousness. The human gifts of language is formed. That we speak, we conceptualize to think to envision a world that's different than the one that, that is today. That power, that uniqueness of the human situation, that we could do more than just react to stimuli, that we could contemplate alternative paths and choose between them. You can imagine and act on the basis of your imagination. That is a freedom that no other life form has. For everything else, you could give a scientific explanation. The events are the effects of causes, determinism, Human consciousness is not caused by something in the past. Human consciousness, self-consciousness, is oriented towards the future. A future that is indeterminate, and radically so, because it's made by your choices, which themselves emerge from the creativity of your mind. Nothing can predict that, because you could create new possibilities. That link between language, imagination, the ability to contemplate your future, and the freedom to choose between it. That's the, the human person. And this is where monotheism found Hashem. Not in just the creator of the universe. But in the supreme expression. The reality as it responds to and affirms the personal. The uniqueness of you. Max Weber, great sociologist, points out that if you look in the first chapter of the Torah. It's stunningly original. It's unlike anything else in antiquity. It's the first time ever that any group of human beings understood the world, described the world without recourse to myth. There's no contending forces. There's no battles of the gods. Hashem speaks. The universe comes into being. Hashem is not in nature, but above it, transcending it, ordering it according to his word. Nature doesn't have any will of its own. It's no longer mysterious. It becomes, in Weber's words, disenchanted, demystified, becomes secularized. It is an immense leap because now for the first time ever, science is possible. Science now just becomes possible because if Hashem created the world, then in principle, by definition, it's intelligible. And all that irrationality, all the myth is dispelled. And now that allows the room 
to discover and to, to observe that intelligence. Now, what's remarkable is that the Jews don't go to and become scientists. The Torah just talks about creation in a mere 34 verses in the entire scope of the Torah and rarely refers to it again. It turns its attention instead to humanity and the human journey towards social order, towards communities, one that honors the image of God in man. This is a great quote. More than the Torah is interested in the home God made for man, it's concerned with the home man makes for God. It's not what's fundamental is not necessarily the natural world that was created, but the social world that we create. That's the significance of the Torah. That's voracious. That's the beginning. Because without a certain view, without a certain understanding of Hashem, you could have never arrived at the idea of what a human person is. Could have never conceived of mankind as capable of transforming nature. It would have been impossible to formulate a concept of the human creative will. And once you had this theological revolution, that led to a social revolution. In divine freedom, our ancestors found the mandate for human freedom. That's the significance of all the stories in the, in the Torah, all the figures, all the personalities, Avram, Sarah, Moshe, Yeshua, Devorah, Chana, all the other vivid characters. They're the first time that you had individuals in literature that weren't mythic heroes in epic situations, but ordinary people wrestling with moral dilemmas, dreaming of children and a home, how they dealt with their siblings, how they dealt with their spouses, their communities. In a famous essay, Eric Orbach, Odyssey Scar, he points out how much more concrete and human the characters of the Torah are when compared with those of Homer. The history the, the stories of the Torah remain so fresh. Millennia after they first recorded, you can delve into it today and we'll speak to you because they belong to a moment in which man discovered the individual. They're so real. And this has huge implications when we think about human situations. And even today, it's hard to grasp the fact that the religion of Judaism is defined as a rejection of the two greatest empires of the world, of Mesopotamia, of the ancient world, Mesopotamia and Egypt. Right, the, the great Jewish journeys, Avram's away from Mesopotamia and the, the Jews away from Egypt, they're journeys of freedom, of liberation from those existing structures. Both those civilizations were super into their immense building projects, but the Torah doesn't see them as impressive, rather oppressive. They're possible only in social orders where the bulk of the population is in effect enslaved, enslaved. The idea that Hashem is not on the side of the power, but the powerless, that the creator of the universe liberates slaves, that's the most powerful revolutionary force ever introduced into the political arena, and it still is. One aspect of the idea that Hashem bestows his image not only on rulers and emperors, but on all men and women as such, it has and still has the power to pave the way for change for any social structure because it relativizes the human, it relativizes the person. Ever since Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, they're the first individuals that are defined not by their place in the structure, not by their place within society, but by their individual relationship with Hashem, who transcends all earthly powers and structures. Now, you, from there, you could trace the genesis of liberty. 
how liberty, our freedom is born from such an understanding because now you're not stuck in a structure. It's relative to your individual standing. And that from there begins a stunning new vision that is brought into the world. The idea of a society of free and equal citizens, which was literally unimaginable before. Didn't have the ideas, didn't have the framework for it. That's the idea that it's not a the the God heard, the Hashem that we have, not God. The Hashem that we have. The one that Avram understood, that Moshe understood, that all the prophets understood. It wasn't a tribal deity. Some group self-interest that was projected onto the sky and that's our God. He wasn't a member of the pantheon of paganism. Some capricious spirit that was invoked to explain why things are as they are. Which is a pseudo-scientific construct that could be rendered redundant by proper science. Nah, the Hashem that Judaism understands, the Hashem of the Torah was a voice of reality as a response to the I with the answering thou. It's our echo of our very consciousness telling us that we're not alone. Our forefathers, our foremothers, they found Hashem in the mystery and the majesty of the personal. Of the personal. And once they heard Hashem reach out to man, they began to understand the significance of human beings reaching out to one another. They began to realize that Hashem is not about power, but relationship. That religion is not about control, but freedom. That Hashem is found less in nature than in human society, in the structures that we make to honor Hashem by honoring His image in other human beings. That's the Torah's faith. It's the faith about the dignity of the personal. And it's a faith that can never be obsolete. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Harusa. If you enjoyed before, you even subscribe and rate it five stars and review and all that, and listen to the other episodes, please reach out to me. Let me know your thoughts, connections, ideas, questions, critiques. My number is 347-893-4467. Chavrusapodcast at gmail.com or across social media channels. Thank you. Have a wonderful day overflowing with happiness.